Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand, thy righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and um, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come together tonight to just be encouraged, strengthened by your word, reminded that everything that we have comes from you. You've provided all that we have. You have counted the numbers of our hairs. You have determined the numbers of our days and that we can relax because we know that you have a plan and that we are here to orient ourselves to your word and to your plan, to your grace. And that as we go through this life, even though there are many things that surprise us and many things that come our way that we don't uh, plan or intend to happen, nevertheless, we know that you are in charge, you're in control. Therefore, we can trust in you fully and completely. And as we commit our ways to you, you make those paths, you make that way straight for us. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, strengthen us, encourage us as we study these things and that we may apply them consistently in our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying the New Testament doctrine of giving. Giving is a subject, sort of a secondary study, as we're coming out of Hebrews chapter 7, where we have the just about the only reference to tithing in the New Testament. Tithing is one of those subjects that for a lot of believers is extremely touchy. I've gotten into some uh, very heated discussions with some people in certain denominations because they just cannot understand what you mean when you say tithing isn't for today. Part of that reason is because it's become almost synonymous with giving, and they just can't can't separate that. That's what they call giving, but they still have these rather legalistic, notions about giving. It is amazing how people just can't grasp the whole principle of, um, of grace, grace giving. Now, we've gone through Old Testament passages the last few weeks, and we summarized those under about four basic summary principles. The first of those was that giving, even under the Mosaic Law, was not a part of the means to spiritual growth. It wasn't the means to either salvation or to uh, spiritual growth, but it was, you had two different types, remember. There was mandatory giving, which was for the support of the, basically the government, which was the priesthood, in support of the temple, 
uh, tabernacle and temple in support of the uh, widows and orphans. But there was also free will giving. And free will giving was an expression of gratitude to God and a recognition within the Mosaic law that everything that we have is really God's. God is the owner of the land that he gave Israel so that they are, in essence, leasees of the land rather than permanent owners, but they have a permanent lease agreement with God based on the Abrahamic covenant. So they, the, within the Mosaic Law, there's this attitude that everything that a person owns has God's name stamped on the title deed, and that in, in the concept of a sacrifice or an offering, you're simply returning to God that which is his, and it's an act of recognition that God has ownership rights for everything in our life. So giving was always based on the concept of grace. Second thing we noted was that grace doesn't mean that you don't have obligation or responsibility, but that it's up to our volition to participate in the way God has planned these things. And we do have various obligations. Third point I made was that grace doesn't mean it's free. It may be free to us, but there's still a cost. There's still a price attached. Jesus Christ gives us salvation at no cost. It's free to one and all, but there's a cost involved. He had to go to the cross and die for our sins. The principle that we see developed uh, even in the Old Testament is the principle of generosity. Then we came over in the New Testament. I started going through the doctrine of tithing in the New Testament, and just to, without going into a lot of detail, uh, just summarize those points. First point was that tithing is mentioned in the Gospels only in reference to the practice of the Pharisees. The term, that is, tithe or tithing, is only found with reference to the Pharisees. And in that sense, it was a legalistic practice. It was legalistic because they thought that by doing it, they could gain the approbation of God. So you can have two different acts. You can have prayer that can be legalistic and grace-oriented. You can have uh, attendance in church or Bible class that becomes legalistic or it's grace-oriented. You can have witnessing that becomes legalistic or grace-oriented. Any Anything can become legalistic because you're doing it in order to get God's approval. You're doing it to get brownie points for God, and anything can be perverted. And that's exactly what happened. Remember, Paul said in Romans 7 that the Mosaic law was righteous, good, and holy. And that means that the laws pertaining to tithing were righteous, good, and holy, but the way tithing was practiced, Remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. The way tithing was practiced by the Pharisees was a way to manipulate the favor of God, and so that's why it became legalistic. A lot of people throw this term legalism around in, a, in an inappropriate way. People say about someone, perhaps, who is very concerned about always doing things the right way, appropriate conduct, uh, very sensitive to moral issues, very sensitive to being obedient to Scripture, there are those who say, oh, they're just legalistic. They're not legalistic. They're just concerned about doing the right thing. Legalism has to be correctly defined. Legalism is the attempt to gain God's favor on the basis of what we do, as opposed to what Paul says is that in response to what God has done, we should live a life in gratitude to him. And they may, in some ways, look the same on the outside, but only God knows the, knows the heart or what the internal motivation is. So the first principle was that 
The, the tithing is mentioned in, in the Gospels with reference to the legalistic practice of the Pharisees. When it came to giving, the Lord, our Lord mentioned in Matthew 6, 2, and 3 that the principle was that this is to be a private matter. It is between the individual and the Lord. Not only should the individual believer, uh, should, should individual believers not know how much some believer is giving in terms of either amount or percentage, but it's nobody's business whether or not you are giving. The whole thing is a private matter between the individual and the Lord. And what you see in so many churches is where there is this uh, emphasis, almost a show uh, of giving. And uh, you, you've got to be careful not to overreact and go in the other ways. I pointed out last time, there are some churches who, who overreact in the other direction and they'll hide the offering box and stick it back in the corner of the nursery under a flower pot so it makes sure nobody can find it. I'm being a little facetious, but, but they, they make it almost difficult to give, impossible to give. It's hard to find how to, how to give. And you don't want to overreact because that's just as wrong in its way as, as what it's reacting against. You just want to be relaxed about the whole thing, and it's between the individual and the Lord, remembering that God will always supply that which is needed. Third principle is that the New Testament recognizes that free will giving is based on gratitude in the soul and not some prescribed percentage. And I gave the reference from Luke 21, 2 through 4 about the widow giving out of her poverty. That brought us to the fourth point, which dealt with our passage specifically that Abram's tithe, when he tithed to Melchizedek, gave 10%, was a one-time gift that's described in Hebrews 7, 5 through 9, and it came from the recovered plunder. It didn't come from all of his possessions, if you read the text. It came from his plunder, not everything that he had before that. So this, if, if... if we were to apply this passage the way the tithers want to apply it, they'd get a lot less money than uh, than what they're trying to get. Unfortunately, it's just used to manipulate people by guilt, and that is a violation. If you're giving out of guilt, you're violating our various passages and scriptures we'll see, uh, see this evening. Fifth point, then, is that tithing is not a synonym for giving and isn't a substitute for Grace giving. It's a tithing was a mandatory form of giving, but don't use the phrase or think of it as, as a, simply a synonym for giving. Tithing was something completely different. Now that brings us to the sixth point, which is that the New Testament principles for grace giving are located in three central passages that I want to look at this, this evening. The first is Romans 12:8, and it magically appears on the screen. Romans 12:8. The second is 1 Corinthians 16:1 through 4, and the third is 2 Corinthians 9:4 through 15. So we'll start with Romans 12:8. This sets a summary foundation for the principle of giving. It's talking about. Uh, Spiritual gifts in context. Well, let's just turn there in our Bible. Sometimes when I put everything up on the overhead, I'm afraid people are learning to come to Bible class and never, uh, never go through their Bibles anymore. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 8. 
The context is talking about spiritual gifts, and there are seven spiritual gifts that are listed in verses 6 through 8. And they have to do with uh, prophecy and service and teaching and uh, exhortation, leadership, and mercy. And I left out the one we're talking about, which is giving. So it's talking about giving, and it's talking about the spiritual gift of giving in this passage. And that is specifically the reference because it's talking about how a person should exercise that spiritual gift. But the principle still applies in terms of the use of the gift. The one thing that's interesting is everybody has a spiritual gift. But of most of the spiritual gifts, uh, ignoring the sign gifts since they ended in uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem by the close of the canon, but with all of the spiritual gifts, every every Christian is expected to function within the category of all the spiritual gifts. So just because you don't have the gift of giving doesn't mean you shouldn't give. Just because you don't have the gift of witnessing doesn't mean you shouldn't witness. Just because you don't have the gift of leadership doesn't mean you shouldn't lead because in some realm of your life you are a leader, either as a parent or as a husband or as in participation of something uh, at school or work or in the military leadership, uh, you, you operate at some level in terms of uh, in terms of leadership. So the principle for giving is, as it's translated in the New American Standard, is with liberality, giving with liberality, and that's I don't think that catches the meaning of the uh, Greek word. If you just look the Greek word up in a couple of basic Greek dictionaries, you get something like what I have up on the screen. The Greek word there that's translated with uh, uh, liberality is uh, is in, the Greek preposition in, plus the uh, noun haplotes. And it has to do with single, that is, in the sense of being single-minded, not having an ulterior or double motive. It's used to indicate that which is simple or pure, sincere, faithful, or it, it indicates a plenitude. That's a fancy word for generosity. In the New Testament, the writer says that it's only uh, used only in a moral sense as the opposite of duplicity, meaning sincerity, faithfulness toward others, manifested in helpfulness and giving assistance to others. It's equivalent to being faithful and benevolent. Well, when I think of liberality, I don't necessarily think of of being faithful. Uh, Benevolent, yes, in the sense of generosity. However, the basic idea of this word is of something that is done with a a, uh, uh, genuine, sincere, Attitude. There's no sense of, of guilt manipulation. There is no sense of, of trying to impress God or anyone else with, with giving. It is giving the gift with no strings attached, without any reservations, without any hidden agendas. Often you have people say, well, I've given X number of dollars to the church and I just don't like the the way they painted the Sunday school building, so I'm not going to give them any more money. Or they're they're doing something or not doing something the way you think they ought to be be doing it. Or give to a seminary and say, well, they're not teaching this favorite course that I think ought to be taught the way I think it ought to be taught, so I'm not going to give any more money. That's, That's not grace giving. Because there's no Christian organization that's always going to do it right. This church... 
leadership isn't always going to make wise decisions. We're not perfect. Uh, the seminaries don't do that. People make mistakes. People are, are sometimes looking at things from a different perspective than we are. And when we give, to, we're supporting the mission of a, of a ministry. We're supporting the, the leadership of that ministry. And it is given as unto the Lord. And we, once it leaves our fingers, that's it. It is uh, totally up to the Lord, and we should forget about it once we make that decision. I'm not talking about if a school or ministry or church shifts their position or begins to teach that which is erroneous or they, their doctrinal position shifts or something of that nature. So we give freely as, as unto the Lord. That's the idea there. The person who gives, gives freely as unto the Lord without reservation. And, of course, it should. It, I think it's the concept of benevolence or generosity is also present there. Now, that's our first passage. That is a summary understanding of the concept of giving in the New Testament. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul went on three missionary journeys and a fourth trip that I believe he went on uh, as he was uh, uh, taken to Rome, and then he went beyond there. At the end of the first missionary journey, now remember this. This is one of those teaching moments that you'll, you'll capture the chronology of the New Testament. At the end of the first missionary journey, he wrote one epistle. At the end of the second missionary journey, he wrote two epistles. At the end of the third missionary journey, he wrote Anybody want to guess? Three epistles. And then when he was imprisoned in Rome, he wrote four epistles. It's just real easy. If you can count to four, you can pretty much remember all of that. So it's, it's, it's not real tough. At the end of his uh, second missionary journey was when Paul goes to Ephesus for a short time. And it is from Ephesus that he writes uh, back to Corinth, and he writes First, first Corinthians. So that is... Uh, what he is, is what he writes then, and at that time he is has heard that there is a, a famine in Jerusalem, that they are going through difficult times financially, which is part of the fourth cycle of discipline, uh, as per Leviticus chapter 26, coming on the nation Israel as God's getting ready to uh, kick them out of the land under the fifth cycle of discipline, which will uh, come to a conclusion in AD 70. So the believers that are living in, Jer- in Jerusalem and in Israel at that time in Judea are having, uh, difficult, having a difficult time. And that Paul is going to take up a collection, a financial collection, from the congregations as he goes back through on his, on his third missionary journey. And he is going to go where? He is going to go back to Jerusalem and take this, this money with him. So this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 16.1. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Now what, what is Paul doing here? Because this, this runs counter to what some people think. Paul is getting ready to ask them for money. Paul is going to tell them that there is a financial need and that they have a responsibility to do something, no matter how little it may be, do something to help the need. See, there are some people who get the idea that, that uh, it's more spiritual not to ever mention that a ministry has certain, certain needs. 
Paul clearly uh, rejects that. He mentions the fact that there's a financial need in Judea and that it is, he doesn't say, well, just pray about it. He says, set a, he's going to give instructions about how to set aside the money on a regular basis so that when he comes, there will be the financial resources there. And instead of coming in at one time and saying, okay, we're going to have a big fundraiser today. When I leave next week, I have to take $15,000 with me. So let's just surprise everybody. And next week, uh, everybody come up with $15,000. He knows that it's going to be five or six months before he gets back to everybody, or it might have even been longer. And so he says, start laying up money now. Take a little bit out of your paycheck each week, and then by the time I get there, there will be a significant amount, and it won't, it won't hurt. It's very orderly. It's very precise, but he's not afraid to mention a need. Back in the middle of the 19th century, there was a tremendous believer in Bristol, England, by the name of George Mueller. And George Mueller had an orphanage. And George Mueller and uh, Hudson Taylor are a couple. Not that George Mueller was supporting Germany now. He didn't reincarnate. But I know some of you are thinking that. But uh, this was the original George Mueller. And he had a tremendous, I think, gift of faith and trust in God. And he made a decision for himself that he was not going to ever tell anybody about any of his financial needs. So he'd get up in the morning and... He tells stories about how they wouldn't have any bread or any food, and he had this orphanage, and he would have 40, 50, 100 kids, and he'd have no food. So they would pray, and a bread truck would break down outside the front door, and so they'd have to give all the bread to the orphanage. And he has story after story after story like that. Now, people read that, and they say, ah, I need to do what George Mueller did. I'm not going to tell anybody about my needs except God. I'm just going to pray to God. And he's going to answer that. Well, God did not direct us in the New Testament to do what George Mueller did. There's nothing wrong with what George Mueller did. That fits under one of those areas that's a gray area. While you're still in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to go back to, uh, flip back just a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of stuff in here that really flies in the face of certain sort of sacred cows that we sometimes have. And the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 8, Paul is dealing with the principle of, of what we'd call gray areas, the principle of, of liberty in the areas that are neither right nor wrong. And he says um, he's going to deal with meat sacrificed to idols. And he says, in the beginning now, concerning things offered to idols... And whenever you see, especially in the New King James or New American Standard, this phrase, now concerning, which in the Greek is peri day, that's, uh, he's shifting to a new topic. That gives you your outline. So you have a topic shift at 8.1, but you don't have another topic shift again for several chapters, not till 16. Actually, everything after that sort of flows together. So he says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone knows that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this was known by him. And I just want to skip past all that. And he gets down here and he says, he talks about the whole issue of, of doubtful things. He says, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. He says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and there is nothing, no other God but one. And where he's going to go with that is to warn them about... Uh, 
whether or not they should eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Some people said, no, you shouldn't, because that would indicate you're validating the idolatry, and so it's wrong. Others said, well, the idols are nothing. They're just stone. There may be a demon there, but, but they don't have any reality there. It's fine to eat the meat. And they were, they were grace-oriented. Others, it wasn't that they were great or, or grace-oriented. They were immature. They were weak, as Paul says here in the chapter. So he, the principle is, Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. In other words, don't use your liberty in the front people you know are weak and it will become a stumbling block or an occasion for them to sin. In other words, be sensitive to people. It's the law of love. Recognize that some people just may not be taught and might be a problem for them. So uh, don't don't um, uh, put a... In, use your liberty to put a stumbling block in front of others. Now, most people, when they deal with this issue of gray areas and doubtful things, or or areas that are not specifically addressed in Scripture as right or wrong, they go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, they talk about the meat offered to idols, and they stop. They don't go into chapter 9. But chapter 9 is just as much a part of the discussion of doubtful things as chapter 8 is. But it's a different area. It's an area of how the apostles conducted their ministry. Wow, maybe that's a fresh idea for you. That, that some pastor may conduct his ministry one way before God, another pastor another way, and both are okay. Both come under the category of doubtful things. That's what Paul says in verse 1. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work? In the Lord, in other words, he's, he's asking these rhetorical questions to emphasize the fact that he is an apostle and he has every right and privilege that belongs to someone who has been chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to be an apostle. And then he follows that up with a couple of more uh, rhetorical questions in verse 4. He says, don't we have a right to eat and drink as apostles? And the idea there is that don't we have a right to, to enjoy life and to enjoy the fine things of life, to eat good food, to drink uh, good wine, to enjoy all of the benefits and all the pleasures of life? He says, don't we as an apostle have, uh, do we have no right to take along a believing wife, uh, as do all the other apostles? So apparently all the other apostles, when they traveled, took their wives and children along with him. And Paul says, wouldn't I have a right to do that as well? And then he says, or is it only, in verse 6, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? And then he goes on, I want you to skip down to verse uh, 12. Verse 12, he says, if others are partakers of this right over you, that is to accept money, payment, honorariums for ministry to have their wives and children supported, in the case of uh, Peter and others when they travel, he says, um, others have this right over you, don't we even more? And he's appealing to the fact because he has a relationship with him. He says, nevertheless, we have not used this right. He's still talking about doubtful things. He's saying, look, it is perfectly legitimate for a, another apostle to bring along his family with him and to expect you as a congregation to house them and feed them and clothe them and basically pay them a salary. I've chosen not to exercise that right. 
Let me put it in, in other terms. Some pastors out there, because of what, for whatever reason, decide that when they write material, they're going to go through the standard operating procedure of publishing books and selling books in the, in the Christian book marketplace. Some pastors say, no, I'm, I'm going to use a, a grace process and I'm just going to make them available and we're not going to put any price. One, the point I'm making is one's not right and one's not wrong. They're the, it's an individual decision of whoever that pastor is, depending on how, whatever the circumstances are in his particular life and ministry. And that's uh, the principle here. Paul says even in verse 14, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. That could relate to publishing through a standard publishing house or just uh, operating on a, on a grace ministry. It can go either way. The point I'm making is that too often what we do is we come along and we look at the way somebody did something. Paul did it where he didn't ask for support in Corinth. What people forget is he asked for support in Ephesus where he's writing the letter. So we look at somebody and say, look, they did it this way. Look look how God blessed them. Now let's make that an absolute way and we all have to do it that way. George Mueller never mentioned that he had a financial need. Let's all do it that way. Well, the Scriptures doesn't say that. That was George Mueller's decision between him and the Lord and the decision how he wanted to conduct his ministry. And it was fine, and it was wonderful. It's an incredible testimony, and it just it's wonderful to read the stories of how God provided. But that's not the only way God provides, and it was, he wasn't following any mandates from Scripture when he did it that way. That was just the decision that he was making that was between him and the Lord. So I think there are those who have uh, misapplied some things here. Obviously, we live in an age when you go to many churches and they ask for so much money and they sell everything. And you go and you have, and I've, I've been places where where you uh, preach the morning message and the tapes are duplicated and for sale for $10 a piece on the way out the back door before you're ready to go home. All kinds of different ways that, that people do things. I think there's an overreact there's a there's a rea- oh, an overreaction to that when people say, "Oh, we're so tired of hearing everybody trying to twist our arm about money and always taking up a collection and putting a price tag on everything that we're going to hide the basket back in the nursery somewhere, never mention money, and never tell anybody what's going on because if you even do that, you've got to be wrong. See, it's just an overreaction in the other direction. It's legitimate to, I think, on the basis of what Paul does right here in 1 Corinthians 16, one, to tell people... For, to, about legitimate needs, as we did at the congregational meeting in February, to let people know we have a plan. Our plan is to that we would like to buy land and we would like to buy a building. Uh, it's not going to be free. It's going to cost something, and we just put that out, and the Lord's going to provide, and the Lord provides through people. It's legitimate for ministries like Jim Myers' ministry or Moses Anwabiko or, or any number of other missionaries to let people know what it is that they need. How many of us have ever seen the, any headquarters operations of any of these ministries? 
How many of us know how many computers they need, how many printers they need, how much it costs for them to have Internet hookups, how, many, how much secretarial help they need? We don't have any idea because we're not local there. Uh, some of these places have, have been given uh, houses. I know of ministries that have houses and yards, and they have to pay landscapers to come and cut the grass and do everything else. So we don't know what's, what's needed, but it's, so it's helpful for ministries to just say, pray for us about these things. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, some people have, have reacted to that. But that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's saying there's a legitimate need in Jerusalem. There are fellow believers who are starving, who don't have the money. There's no food there. We need to not only pray about them, but when I come, I will take up a collection for them. So he is identifying a need, and he is telling them ahead of time, that he will be taking up a specific collection for them. And in verse 2, he gives them, uh, gives them the principle. He says, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Notice he didn't say lay 10% aside. He didn't say lay... He didn't, he didn't give any qualification, just something. It's between you and the Lord how much you're going to set aside. And this wasn't for the support of the local congregation... This was money that was to be taken back to Jerusalem to help fellow believers there. So this would come under the category, perhaps, of benevolence fund or missionary giving. It says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. In other words, it's not on the basis of a percentage. It's the basis on how God has provided for you and how God has taken care of you and how you handle it. And he says that there be no collections when I come. In other words, he's not going to take up a collection when he comes. The money's already going to be set aside. What's interesting to me is sociological studies are interesting every now and then. You don't make policy as a church uh, based on those. You don't base your evangelism methodology on them, which is the standard operating procedure in church growth today. But it's interesting, I, I'm familiar with a situation not too far from here where there's a, uh, was a church for sale. And they had about three and a half acres and they had five buildings on it in a parking lot. And they were asking, I think, around four, four and a half million dollars for it. And it was a tremendous uh, setup and a nice church plan. A couple of those buildings had been built within the last 15 years or so. One was kind of their office building. It was, I think, three floors so it was a nice setup. Nice setup. It was bought for, I think, $3.5 million recently by a Korean Baptist congregation that has been meeting for a number of years over at, over at Tallawood. Now, this church that was for sale had a membership. I know at one time they were in three services in their auditorium, and that auditorium probably holds about 800. The church that bought it had 100 people in it. They paid cash. Why'd they do that? Because they were Koreans, and Koreans give percentage-wise about six times more than Caucasians do. Blacks give two or three times. I mean, different. It's interesting. Different ethnic groups give differently in their congregations, just because of the way they approach from their worldview and their culture how they handle money. And prosperity and personal and, and material possessions. 
And so it's a, it's interesting, but here's a church that's about 15 years old of 125 members. It comes up with three and a half million dollars cash to pay for, uh, pay for this church. And I, I think that's fascinating. So the principle is as he may prosper, every, every person, every group is going to handle that, uh, somewhat differently. And then, just, I don't have a slide for it, but verse 3, Paul says, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So we see a couple of important principles here. First of all, there's a principle in verse 2 of regular giving. Now, and that may be weekly, it may be, maybe you get paid twice a month, maybe you get paid once a month. Uh, but it's on a, there's a regularity to it. There is a decision beforehand. There is you sit down, you budget, you analyze your finances, and you make a responsible decision uh, before the Lord and pray about it. Then you lay it aside, set it aside for the Lord. The principle, of the percentage is as you, as the Lord pro- prospers you. And then there is a responsible handling of the money by a responsible individual chosen by the congregation. We have a treasurer. We have a policy that when when money is collected, it always goes back, and the two of the deacons are together, and they, uh, they, they're back there to witness each other, make sure they double count the money, all these safeguards in place. I know of, of some cases where the, the collection is taken up, and the money is taken back, and it's put on the pastor's desk. And I know in this one particular case, the pastor goes in, takes all the cash out and puts it in his pocket and deposits the checks in the bank. It's a doctrinal church. I won't say anything more about that. But that's what happens. It's like what Pat Kate put that slide up. If you missed it, uh, the second morning of the conference, no, it wasn't Pat, it was Jim Myers. $16 billion a year is embezzled in churches by deacons and pastors and elders. $15 billion is given to missions. So you have to have safeguards. The church has to have uh, men that, they, uh, that have integrity who are appointed to handle the money so that it is all done in an honest and above-board way where there are checks and balances because everybody has sin natures and can be uh, tempted, especially in the area of, of finances. So Paul says, when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. It's got to be somebody with honesty so that they don't uh, decide to take a vacation to the uh, to Rome or to the French Riviera for a while on their way to Jerusalem. They want to make sure that um, that it gets to Jerusalem. And then Paul says, and if it is fitting or if it's proper or appropriate that I go also, they will go with me. So they won't go, and if you think it's necessary, I'll go in attendance. Okay, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse verses 1 through 4. Now, the longest passage, the most detailed passage on giving in the New Testament is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And again, this is dealing with the same basic uh, background uh, issue of with this giving to the churches and in, in their need in, in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 and 9 actually deal with the whole pattern 
of giving. For example, in chapter 8, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, in other words, they were going through persecution, the Christians were going through persecutions, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty. Paul doesn't just say their poverty, their deep poverty. In the riches of their liberality, in the in the depth of their generosity, they didn't have much to give, but they gave a, a tremendous proportion of it. It wasn't based on the fact that they were uh, wealthy and that they had plenty. They had very, very little, yet they gave a tremendous amount. And so Paul appeals to that as an example of giving. And he gives another pattern in verse 9 of chapter 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So the standard for grace giving always goes back to that great gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk in verse 16 of that chapter about the a collection that he had taken up before uh, that was taken to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 9, he comes down to talk about the giving of that particular gift. And in verse 5, he says, Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and to prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. That's referring to the collection of that which he had instructed them about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He sent men ahead in order to uh, collect that gift. It was made up of money, which we might call pledges. Now, sometimes that's a very abused system in the way a lot of churches uh, give, give, but it's not necessarily or inherently wrong because Paul points out here, he says, this is amount of money, a gift that you previously promised. It was based on your generosity. It wasn't based on guilt or, or arm twisting or any of that, which is too often what happens in, in situations today. And then he gives a principle related to giving in, uh, Chapter 9, verse 6, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly, that is in terms of giving, remember, will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He's expressing the principle, once again, of generosity and giving in support of local church ministries. As we give, we become partners with those ministries and we can have a special blessing and privilege to watch how Jim Meyer's ministry grows and expands or watch how Chafer Seminary grows and expands or when another missionary goes somewhere and we read the reports of how uh, so many people, so many pastors were instructed and so many people learned the word, so many were saved, that we had a part in that because the reality is that every ministry runs on money. It would be nice if it didn't, but every ministry uh, runs on money. And, and it's even more so today. I was having a conversation with someone this week who was just commenting on the observation of how many different ministries that we've seen over the past 10 or 12 years sort of merge together so that there's, 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 they can benefit from the finances because with the cost of, 
of computers. Every ministry has to have computers and Internet and, and, and printing and all these overhead costs soar that if you could just combine some where, where the, the, they didn't have, they could combine their overhead, then it would make things a lot more, a lot more efficient. So we always have to be, be mindful of all those things. And the government comes along, you have to do all the accounting and bookkeeping and all the things related to uh, taxes. Even if you're non, uh, a nonprofit organization, there's all this paperwork. So you, you frequently have to hire the professionals to come in and do that. So all that is part of overhead and just doing business in today's world. In verse 7, Paul makes the statement that we're all familiar with, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. That is, in his thinking. It's not emotional. It's a thought concept. It's thought out ahead of time. Not grudgingly or of necessity. This is a problem that you have in the way money is raised for too many uh, ministries is that there's guilt put on people or there's some other kind of manipulation that goes on. This is very objective. This is where the individual should should go home, look at their finances, look at their budget, think about their own spiritual life, their gratitude. All these things come into play and then make an objective decision as to how much they're going to give in support of local church, in support of missions, and how they're going to uh, plan it out. And the bottom line is God loves a cheerful giver. And the idea translated cheer, cheerful is the idea of someone who is grace-oriented and generous. It's a synonym for that word we saw over in uh, Romans, and it has that idea of liberality to it, of, of generosity and benevolence. And it's, uh, it's given without any strings attached. And verse 8 is the underlying principle that God owns everything that we have. God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, he says to the Corinthians, always notice how many times you have the word related to all here. You have in the Greek, the root word is pas, P-A-S. And it, sometimes it has a different ending. So we have the phrase ponte, pantote, pasan, right in a row. Here we go. Always having all sufficiency in all things. Remember the exercise we did when we went through Genesis chapter 8 and we circled every time there was a use of all or every when the God, uh, when, when during the time of the Noahic flood and all the mountains were covered and uh, all life was killed, we indicated this universality there. That's the same idea here, that God's grace is sufficient for everything and he will provide for the believer who is involved in grace-oriented giving. This isn't to be taken to the irresponsible extreme of the health and wealth crowd that says if you give so much, God's going to be obligated to give it all back to you tenfold. But God is going to supply the need for the believer. That's exactly what Paul is saying in this particular verse, that there will be a provision abundance for every good work. God will provide that which is needed. And then he quotes from the Old Testament in verse 9. From Psalm 112, verse 9, he quotes, As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So in verse 9 and on, we see the principle that God is the one who ultimately supplies for the gift. I don't have verse 10 on a slide, but in verse 10 we read, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower 
and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So the giving is under the category of a fruit or production of righteousness. That means it flows out of the integrity of the believer's soul, not manipulated, not out of guilt, not out of any of these other uh, false motivations. And in verse 11, he concludes by saying, While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So what we see here is that Paul's not afraid to talk about giving. And one reason I make that point is I also see this in some pastors, especially young pastors. And I know when I was young, I had a certain hesitancy about ever talking about money. One reason is, is because we live in this culture where you have a lot of preachers who are always talking about money. And so we have this problem of going to the other extreme. But what we see in Paul is that when it's time to talk about giving and money and there's a need, then you need to talk about money and giving and what the need is. And there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And there's nothing wrong with challenging people to the fact that there are financial needs and God uh, doesn't just drop money out of heaven. That God supplies the need through believers who are grace-oriented and who are responding to, to that particular need. There is a responsibility on the part of believers to be involved in giving. That's not legalism. That's, that's just still part of grace. Nobody's telling you how much. Nobody's looking over your shoulder. And nobody is twisting your arm. But giving is part of the responsibility of the spiritual life of every believer. Now, the problem that we have in our culture is materialism. And Paul addresses this in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and following, 6 to 11 and then 17 down through uh, 19. This is really addressed to people who have a trend in their sin nature towards materialism, lust, and the, des- and, and the desire to amass possessions. He says godliness, that is spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, that word eusebeia in the Greek has to do, we, we, the God-likeness is, is really what the old English had, and God-likeness is to have the image of Christ in you. And so it's, it's that concept of spiritual maturity. Spiritual t- maturity with contentment or happiness is great gain to be happy with your circumstances. Paul addresses that in uh, Philippians chapter 4 when he talks about, I know how to abound and how, I know how to be abased. I can do all things through Christ to strengthen me. Now, a lot of you memorize that verse all, all by itself in Philippians chapter 4. I think that's verse um, 13. I can do all, I still remember singing that as a chorus in Sunday school. I can do all things through Christ to strengthen me. And you think the all things means anything I want to do, right? No, if you look at the context, what Paul is saying in verse 12 is, I know how to be abased, I know how to be abound. In other words, I know how to be poor. I know how to not have anything, and I know how to have prosperity. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things. What are the all things in context? I can handle prosperity or adversity. I can handle abundance or need. I can handle wealth or poverty because I can handle every situation through Christ who strengthens me. And he goes on to say in verse um, 19, a great principle that related to giving, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
Now, when Paul comes to First Corinthians, I mean First Timothy six, he's talking about that spiritually mature attitude that we can relax because we know that God is the one who supplies all of our financial needs. First Timothy six seven, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Now he's not contradicting the proverb that says the wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. He's saying don't try to keep it all. And having we have food and clothing, and with these we shall be content, whether we have much or little. But those who desire to be rich, notice it's desire to be rich here is a desire to be wealthy for the sake of being wealthy because you're placing your happiness in a detail of life. Those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation and a snare. Why? Because they're thinking that something in the cosmic system will give them happiness and meaning and purpose. They make an idol out of money. Colossians 3, Paul calls that that greed is idolatry. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, this isn't talking about men who desire to be successful. There are many men who desire to be successful and mass incredible amounts of wealth for the sake of supporting the local church and missionaries. And and I've had the privilege to know some men like that. Uh, recently, I was introduced to a, another individual like that. He's a president of his own company, builds some kind of machinery, and is very wealthy, has no children. He just lives to give. He and his wife just love to give money to, to missionaries and to, to various ministries. And so that's Paul's not talking about that. Paul's not saying it's wrong to, to amass wealth or to be wealthy. He's saying it's wrong to have the wrong attitude toward it. Because there have been men of tremendous wealth that God has used to supply the needs of local churches and ministries and missionaries, and it has been a wonderful thing. But he's warning there, don't put your focus on the wrong thing. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money, that materialism, lust, that greed is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it's just a warning against putting your emphasis on on the wrong thing. And he warns Timothy, as any pastor, don't focus on wealth, but pursue righteousness, godliness, a spiritual life, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 17, he says, command those who are wealthy in this present age not to be arrogant, nor to trust in uncertain riches. That's the problem is you start trusting in your money rather than in uh, in God. I remember a number of years ago a man who, was on, who had been on listening to doctrine, studying the word for many years, told me, told me that uh, he said, Robbie, make sure you tell people that the biggest test, the toughest test is a test of prosperity. He said, most people think, ah, oh, just give me the test of prosperity. He said, when I didn't have anything, and I wasn't sure if I could pay my bills or pay my employees at the end of every month, I listened to a tape or two a day, and I prayed a lot, and I was dependent upon the Lord conscientiously day by day. But when I got successful and had one of the biggest companies of my kind in, this, in my state and had a tremendous amount of wealth, I forgot got to listen to a tape every day. It was hard. I, I didn't feel I needed to do that every day. 
And it's hard to keep those priorities straight because you, your, your, your survival isn't dependent on it. But the reality is, is when you're wealthy, your survival depends on it even more because you need to pass that prosperity test. Verse 18, Paul puts the focus on the right thing. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share. That's that grace orientation that they may store up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. That's the issue of utilizing our resources, whatever that, that treasure is, whether it's our homes, whether it's our talents, whether it's finances, whatever it is to further the, the uh, ministry, to minister to the body of Christ, and to... Uh, support one another in the correct application of doctrine because the ultimate reality is what happens at the judgment seat of Christ, not what happens at the uh, bottom line on the bank account uh, at the end of life. This is the doctrine, biblical doctrine of giving. It's not based on tithing. It's not legalism. It is based on grace. And grace giving, I remember years ago reading a book on giving by uh, Dr. Ryrie, he said the person who believes in grace giving really ought to give more simply because they understand the dimensions of what happened at the cross. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study this important doctrine. May we be uh, responsive to the challenge of your word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name.